you may ask. How did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson with an M Streamcast, and we'll spend our time talking Torah, learning stuff, and having fun while we learn. You can always send your questions and comments to our mailbag at letstalktorah at gmail.com, and, of course, I will answer as many as I can. <sighs> you know, I thought I could do it. I thought three shows would be enough to go through the whole story of Purim. And I have not been successful. What should I tell you? Last week we did two shows. We just finished the third show, and we are now on to part four. But I'm telling you, somehow, we are going to get through this Purim story, or you guys are going to be listening for hours, which, you know, I don't know if the studio will be so happy if we stay so long. Before we get back into Purim, though, I want to tell you something happened in class this week. So we're studying about talking in synagogue. And we're trying to explain to the boys that, that the holiness of a synagogue, of a temple, is such that you shouldn't be talking there. You study there, pray there, but not idle chatter. So a boy asked me, he said, what about in the, in the, in the base of Middash, in the real temple? Did they talk there? So I said, you know, I, I can't tell you for sure. I can't guarantee it. Um, I mean, I have to say they didn't. And he goes home. He asks his father. His father says, no, they, they didn't talk. Um, they didn't just talk idly. They would, maybe they would discuss the sacrifice being brought and why they're being brought and what needs to be done. So I told the boy, I said, you misunderstood what you were supposed to ask your father. What I meant was that when a person went to the temple, it was so holy. It was impossible to talk. You, you were just in such awe. You just felt the spirituality of the temple. You couldn't possibly just talk about a baseball game. You couldn't do it. I said, that's what I want you to ask your father. And you know, it's interesting. The story of Purim takes place between the first temple and the second temple. And it will be Esther's son, for, right, from the marriage of Achashverosh. That son, Kerish, will go ahead and allow the second temple to be rebuilt. So that may be one of the reasons it came up in class. Really, Other things are going on. But before we get back into part four of the Purim story, I just, you know, it's important to remind everybody, I know you guys love the show, and I do need your help. Please go to my homepage, hit the donate button. We got to pay for this beautiful studio and all the people that are helping. We got to let the show spread. So I do need your help. Just hit that donate button, leave a name, leave a message. I'll give you a shout out, memory of, happy birthday. And of course, in advance, I do thank you. Okay. So part four. Part four. Let's even make some change over here. Am I? Okay. Why did that not work? Okay. Part four. So Esther is by the, is by the party with the king. Okay. That's better. Okay. Esther is by the party. She, it's the second party. Um, Haman has already paraded Mordechai through the streets. Ahasuerus is clearly nervous 
that Haman wants to assassinate him and take the kingdom himself. Esther is already at the second party, and let's, you know, let's do something. So Ahasuerus said, okay, Esther, what do you want? So Esther says, Your Majesty, you don't realize, because I never told you, but I'm actually Jewish. Not only am I Jewish, I am the great-granddaughter of King Saul, of Shaul HaMelech, the first king of the Jewish people. I am his great-great, I'm not sure how many greats-granddaughter, which means she has royal blood, which means that Achishverosh will now look at her differently. She's not just a commoner who he made into his queen. He actually married royal blood. Whoa, royal blood. And he says, you're Jewish. So what's the problem? So she says, someone wants to kill me and my people. And Ahasuerus says, what are you talking about? Somebody, who, what's going on? It doesn't make sense. Who wants to kill you? So, um, so it's again, we started talking about at the end of the last show, like Ahasuerus just gave Haman permission a few days ago to destroy the Jewish people. Do you want to tell me Ahasuerus was such a fool that when he gave permission, Haman never said which nation was being destroyed and Ahasuerus didn't know? You're a king, you don't know who your prime minister wants to kill? That's ridiculous. But it's possible. It is possible that the that he was a fool. Or it's possible that since the Megillah is going to be written in Persia and Ahasuerus is still king, you cannot write a story about this wicked Ahasuerus who wanted to kill the Jewish people. You can't write that. Did he have a change of heart? We can have a lot of excuses. There's no question uh, from the commentaries that Ahasuerus was not a lover of the Jewish people. He didn't allow the second temple to be rebuilt. But now that it's Esther over here who wants to have her life saved and it's Haman who he's afraid is trying to assassinate him, so Haman's, uh, so Ahasuerus is uh, okay with changing midstream because who cares, right? He's not going to lose his queen. If it means killing Haman, okay, no big deal. So the king says, who is this wicked person that wants to kill my queen and her people? Who is this person? So if it was me and you, right? Haman, you may see it's Haman, right? Even though Ahasuerus is the power, right? He's the king. And he's the one that gave his ring to Haman to, to uh, fulfill uh, Haman's desire and Ahasuerus' desire as well to wipe out the Jewish people. So if it was me and you sitting in the room, we'd say, oh, we can't tell the king the full truth. Like he, he'll go crazy if we accuse the king. So we better say Haman and uh, that will help us out. That means that you think that God needs your help. But Esther already sees that God is taking care of the whole thing. Just yesterday, Hummel was building a gallows. This morning already, Mordechai is being paraded through the streets. So you see that God is taking care. So don't help God. God doesn't need our help. So Esther, you look at the phrase. She says, a man, a pain, an enemy, this man... And the commentaries say she was actually pointing at Ahasuerus. Okay, an angel came along and moved her hand over to point at Haman. Okay, that's what God wanted. 
And she says, Haman. Whoa. Haman says, okay, I didn't know S was Jewish. Like, come on, no one told me this. Right? The king gets up in a fury. Yeah. His prime minister, who he already suspects of wanting to assassinate him, he just didn't know if Esther was part of the plot, but his prime minister, who he, again, who he suspects of wanting to assassinate him, has just been accused of not only, in his own mind, assassinating him, but assassinating the queen as well. Now Ahasuerus could think, this whole plan of killing the Jewish people, that was nothing to do with the Jewish people. He wanted to get rid of Esther. As that's how the king is starting to think, right? Whatever his feeling towards the Jewish people are, but if he thinks that Haman wants to kill the queen and him, right? So Haman's uh, done for. But interesting enough, the king doesn't react right away. He said he gets up and he goes to his garden. In other words, as a smart king, right? We cannot act. I mean, you would hope. Right? The kings are not just acting on a whim that as soon as something bothers them, they just act. Acting without thinking is always a dangerous idea. He wants to collect himself, collect his thoughts, make sure he's clear, and then he'll come back in and take care of it. So he goes out to his garden. And you can imagine a king's garden is beautiful. Botanical garden. It's beautiful. The Talmud tells us he had these famous trees. They were called Kastani trees. I don't know exactly what they are, but a very famous tree, very beautiful tree. And there's an angel comes down and starts chopping down the trees. And the king says, what are you doing in my garden? And the angel says, I'm chopping down these trees. And the king says, and who exactly asked you to cut down my trees? And the angel says, what do you mean, Haman? So the king is thinking like, Haman, my private garden, chopping down my trees? Like, what is going on over here? And as the king is thinking, he's, re- he's recollecting that, like, years earlier, like nine years earlier, um, he had been in a similar situation where he'd gotten upset at Vashti. Go back to part one of our story. He'd gotten upset at Vashti, and... And uh, and he was in this garden, and he came out, and I guess he, it was because of Haman, he executed Vashti. So he said, this Haman is killing my wives. He's taking over my palace. He's destroying my garden. Like, what is going on here? So clearly the garden did not calm him down. He comes back out, and if you're Haman, right, you know you're in big trouble. You're going to have to beg and plead with the queen and hope somehow to convince her that she should uh, not carry through with this threat that Haman wanted to kill her. Like, whatever Haman excuse is going to make up that Esther shouldn't kill him, he's begging and pleading. And the language of the verse is, again, very, very interesting. It says, Haman is falling on the bed. What are you falling on the bed? You're on the floor, you're on your knees begging and pleading. What are you falling on the bed? So it says an angel came and pushed Haman on the bed, and Haman would get up, and the angel pushed him back. So again, to the observer, you walk into the room, you see Haman falling on the bed. You think he's attacking the queen. The king sees this. He and there's guards all over the place, right? 
So he says, you're attacking the queen of the house. As soon as that was said, the guards are there in a second. Haman is on his feet, and they put a bag over Haman's head. Because, again, in those days, if the king gets angry at somebody, it was common that you would cover the face of the accused, the criminal, so the king could decide what to do. And like all good servants, advisors to a king, um, everybody wants to make sure they're on the winning team. So there was this guy, Harvona. Some say Harvona was really with Haman to take care of the Jews and, and help Haman and move things along. But now that he sees Haman's in trouble, all of a sudden Harvona says, Oh, your majesty, look, you see across the, the mountain over there? See that tall gallows in Haman's backyard? And the king sees it and he says, You know what Haman wanted to do with that gallows? He wanted to hang up Mordechai, the guy who saved the king's life. So again, in Ahasuerus' mind, Haman wants to kill the queen. He wants to kill Mordechai, who saved the king's life. So Haman's obviously out to get the king. There's nothing to talk about. And some say Ahasuerus thought, why such a tall gallows? A gallows, nine feet tall, eight feet tall. A hundred feet tall? You make a gallows a hundred feet tall because you want to hang up ten people on it. So Jerry said, hang Haman on it. So amazingly, in the story, within a three-day time frame, Haman has gone from the very top to swinging in, in, the, in the wind. Is that how they say it? Swinging in the breeze? They hang him. Now really, really, if it was me and you, this story should be over. But Ahasuerus is really not such a good guy. He's not such a good guy. He does want us to get killed. He didn't like Haman. But he's not such a good guy. All he has to do is give a decree. My Prime Minister Haman, against my wishes, um, tricked me, fooled me. Um, he wanted to destroy the Jewish people. Um, but his plot was exposed because of my Queen Esther. And uh, all those letters are to be recalled. That's all he had to do. Now, interestingly enough, it takes a few months for Esther and, and Mordechai to get back to have a private meeting with Ahasuerus to discuss this story. So they're back a few months later. Sivan, right? So the story takes place Pesach time. So this is uh, um, two months later. And they tell the king, you know, your majesty begs and pleads to take back the letters. My people, how could you do this? And Ahasuerus says something fascinating. He says, oh, Esther, I wish I could take back the letters. But the rule is once a letter's been sent out with my signature, you can't take it back. Now, I, if he's king, I don't know why that should be the law, but that's the law. Once a letter goes out with my signature, there's no returns. So he tells Esther, but look, you're in charge of Haman's house. The world is now seeing that I am on the side of Mordechai, the Jew, and Esther and his people. Write new letters. Write new letters. Write whatever you want in the letters. You have my backing, and, uh, but that's the best I can do for you. So that means that even though Haman's been killed, the letters are still out there. If the letters are still out there, on the 13th day of Adar, the world could rise up and murder the Jewish nation because the letters were not recalled. 
And any sane person says, ah, the king didn't read the letters. He's okay if I kill Jews. So they make a new letter. The letter says that the Jewish people can make their own army, and anybody who starts up with the Jewish people is to be killed. So that means that you're basically planning for a one-day civil war. But the fact of the matter is that all the king's advisors and generals and soldiers, they all see the king is on Merdechai's side. So you almost have to be a fool to try to help everybody else. So you're not going to help Merdechai. You know, once the 13th of Adar is over and Merdechai is now the new prime minister, you're finished. You're going to be executed. Merdechai will just go through. It'll be a bloodbath. Anybody who's anyone who Merdechai thought was starting with the Jewish people is dead. That's what I would think if I'm one of the king's advisors. So the verse says that all the different king's advisors were clearly on the side of Merdechai. And the Jewish people now knew they were allowed to protect themselves. It would seem for the first letters, technically, they couldn't make armies. But it didn't matter. Because the Jewish people understand that we are not the ones that win war. If God allowed Mordechai to become prime minister, if God made sure that Haman, that enemy of the Jewish people, was executed, so God's on our side. If God's on our side, we're going to win. Right? It doesn't matter that they're still allowed to fight with me. Yes, I have to pray. I have to study, and I have to be good, and I have to be caring, and I have to do mitzvos. But you see the gods on your side, so you have nothing to worry about. Therefore, the day came. The 13th of Adar, there was this civil war, and the Jewish people, the, the only ones that Caesar wanted to fight were these Amaleki people, people related to Haman. The verse says they actually killed 75,000 people, which is interesting. Because that means Haman only gave one day to wipe out the Jewish people. The Jewish people, with everybody's help, only killed 75,000. You can't really wipe out a nation in one day. You almost have to assume that Haman was waiting to see what was going to happen. What was going to happen? If if, um, they are able to wipe out a lot of the Jewish nation, you go to the king and say, I need another day. And sure enough, that's what the king does here to Esther. Esther, what else do you want? So she says, you know, um, in Shushan, we want one more day to get rid of anybody who was on Haman's side. And um, we killed the ten sons of Haman. They must have been the biggest instigators. We would like them strung up on the gallows. So the king says, yeah. Some actually say the king wasn't so happy with that. Angel came and slapped him. And then he said, yeah. But in either case, he gave permission. So... While the whole world, the rest of the world, outside of this capital city of Shushan, um, celebrated the 14th of Adar, which is our day of Purim. And how do they celebrate it? How do, how do Jewish people celebrate, you know, a joyous victory? We eat. And we share. And we give charity. And we send food packages which is really what we do on Purim. On Purim, there's four basic mitzvahs, four basic commands. We read over the story to make sure we hear the miracle. We, we give charity. We send food packages, all things to show love and togetherness. And we have festive meals, and there's wine by the meals. I'm not saying I'm, uh, we're big into alcohol, 
But just the idea, just there are so many things in the Purim story that take place around a bottle of wine. So most people will have some wine. I'm not saying get go overboard, but people have wine. Right? Vashti is killed by a wine party. Therefore, Esther becomes queen. Esther makes two wine parties. Haman is killed because of the wine party. His downfall comes from the wine party. So we have, we have parties. Families get together. Friends get together. Festive meals. But in Shushan, they were still fighting on the 14th. So they, therefore, they rested on the 15th. So there's something called Shushan Purim, which means, not that there's a city called Shushan anymore. It's, uh, at best right now, it's an archaeological dig. But Shushan gets the 15th. So when the rabbis were setting up the holiday of Purim, they said nothing can be better than Jerusalem. Jerusalem is like the capital city of the Jewish nation, the religious Jewish nation. And and if we're going to make a special day, so it's got to include Jerusalem. So they did was they said any walled city from the time when Joshua entered entered the land of Israel keeps Purim on the 15th. So Jerusalem was on the 15th. There's a few other cities in Israel. It's debatable. Tveria, a few other places. So the interesting, the Megillah continues. So the next year, the next year, um, Esther and Mordechai approached what would be, I guess, the high court when they wanted to create the holiday of Purim. And they said, you know, we, we, this should be a very, very special holiday. And the rabbis agreed. And the Megillah was written. It was written with, with um, God basically telling the words to write. And the basic laws of the Megillah, of Purim, were put in place. And then, the end of the Megillah, we have a very short little paragraph that about Ahasuerus is ruling the world, and uh, Mordechai is his prime minister, and if you want to know all the great deeds that Mordechai did, they're all in the chronicles of Persia, of, of, of uh, Madai, Persian Madai, which, of course... I don't think we have those um, books anymore. I'm pretty sure those are long gone. But that's where everything is. So just a few points. So, okay, in part four, we did get through the story. Um, we have a few minutes. Let's just get, let's talk about a few of the other things that happen on Purim. So it's interesting, you should fo- we should focus. When Haman originally speaks to the king, to destroy the Jewish people, he says they're spread out. They're all over the place. They're, they're individuals. They are not a wholesome unit. So the whole story of Purim is we came together. We were what we call ba'achtos. We were together. There was a friendship. There was a love. There was a caring, which is what we do with all the different mitzvahs that we do on Purim is to bring out all this good, warm feeling. You know, it's interesting, um, there's a school down the block from where my school is. Um, uh, they're, they're more modern, but uh, they dress a little differently, but it's fine. So they always come and dance. In this season, their boys' high school dance with our boys, their girls' high school dance with our girls, because the idea around Purim is unity. I don't have to look like you. I don't have to think like you. But, I, it, but if you're my brother, right, we're all Jewish, 
then we have to be together. Again, we don't have to do everything the same. We don't have to act the same. We don't have to talk the same. We don't have to look the same. But we do need to know that we're one, right? And that's probably as good a place as any wishing everybody a happy, healthy, safe Purim. The music is playing. I hope you enjoy it. Short and sweet. Thank you, of course, for wonderful songs to listen to. You know, I can't do it without you. Thank you on the production team. We have David in the back. I hope I've left you to some food for thought. Until next time, I am Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk Torah on NM Streamcast. Until next time, don't forget to think about it.